0: All right, as we begin this morning, we do come to Colossians chapter 3 again. Chapter 3 is full of imperatives, it is full of a list of commands calling the Christian to live a life for Christ. Such commands, though, are not compelled by obligation alone, they flow out of our relationship with the Lord. And that's what I'm trying to convey as we spent so much time in this first part of verse 12. It's for that reason that we've taken so much time with these words, examining Paul's description of those who are children of God through the work of Christ. And so looking at these, having looked at two descriptive words at least already, we now come to the final word. And with these three words, I think we get a well-rounded picture of what it means to be a child of God. So therefore, I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Colossians, Colossians chapter 3. For the final part in the message that I've titled, To Be Called Children of God. As always, I ask those of you who are able to please stand for the reading of God's word. Colossians chapter 3, and I will begin reading in verse 12. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. You may be seated. Resolved. To examine carefully and constantly what that one thing in me is, is which causes me in the least to doubt the love of God and to direct all my forces against it. Stephen Nichols writes of Jonathan Edwards that he was a young man unsure of his future. He had many gifts and not a few options before him. His father and grandfather were ministers, as well as uncles and others in his family. In fact, if you want a study of an interesting family tree, you would look at Jonathan Edwards. He had a first-rate education, one of the finest of the day in his time. So he was well prepared then for a future in the halls of the academia, in the halls of the schools. Indeed, he did spend some time there. He even had a penchant for science and, and perhaps could have headed off in that direction. But for the time being, this young man had become a pastor And he was a young pastor at that. A man of many gifts, talents, and aptitudes. Jonathan Edwards could serve almost anywhere in almost any way. But he chose to serve God in the house of God. He found himself at this time pastoring the minority faction of a Presbyterian church split near the harbor docks of New York City. So this Presbyterian church had split In two groups, one large, one small, I don't even know what it was over. What I do know is that Jonathan Edwards became the pastor of the smaller group. This was no small small task for any man. It was no doubt, though, especially difficult for a man like Edwards. His age of 18 at the time limited both his wisdom and his experience for such a difficult situation. His upbringing in a small New England town meant that pastoring in this city of 10,000, which was bustling at that time, no doubt probably shocked his system. He was a young man, as Nichols writes, both a place to, who needed both a place to stand and a compass for some direction. That compass for him took him to writing guidelines for his life. In the years of 1722 and 1723, Edwards would produce 70 guidelines. Now we know them as his resolutions. And each began this way, resolved, as you see here. They are an expression of Edwards' diligence in pursuing the Lord, never wanting to be found self-righteous, self-assured, or self-satisfied, Each resolution was reviewed continuously, almost daily by Edwards, and they directed him towards the Lord. Of the 70 resolutions that Edwards wrote, number 25 reads this once again. Resolved to examine carefully and constantly what that one thing in me is, which causes me in the least to doubt the love of God and to direct all my forces against it. Doubt is defined as a feeling of uncertainty or a lack of conviction. With just five letters, D-O-U-B-T, this word doubt hardly is an intimidating word for us. We usually say it casually as to say something like, well, I I kind of doubt that, or "I, I doubt it happened that way. But underneath this veneer of lightheartedness, doubt actually stipulates seriousness. Look up the word doubt in a thesaurus, and you will find words such as distrust, and fear, and reluctance, indecision, and wavering. Therefore, instead of saying, I kind of doubt that, what we could really say is, I distrust that. And with that small change of that one word, the phrase then conveys something harsher. This reality is conveyed when we think about doubting God. When we say, I doubt God, instead saying, I distrust God. Do you see the severity of that sentence? No wonder Jonathan Edwards then was so concerned about sowing the doubt of God's love into his life. No wonder he sought so hard to rid himself of any doubt that might be in his life. Doubt informs our reality. Doubt impacts our reactions, and doubt influences our relationships. It informs our reality because when we doubt, we take something to be untrue, or we think it's untrue, and then we analyze the circumstances and the situations going on based on that doubt. It impacts our reactions then, because our response will be determined based on our belief of a person or situation. And finally, it impacts our relationships because if we doubt someone, we lack the confidence to place ourselves into their hands. The same is true in our relationship with God. When we doubt the love of God, when faced with a trying circumstance, a deep sorrow, an intense suffering, one can easily doubt the love of God. But when they do, that doubt will define their reality Most obviously, they'll say something like, how could God do this to me? And in another way, the love of God, if we we doubt the love of God, it will define our reactions. So that in that time, in that trying time, in that difficulty, rather than endure what may be even a loving act of God, a person will rebel against it, often making the situation worse. And of course, if we doubt the love of God, It definitely determines our relationship with the Lord. Those who doubt the love of God lack the trust to lean on God when they need him most. Those who doubt the love of God lack the conviction to walk in the ways of God when it would be most impactful. And those who doubt the love of God lack the certainty of salvation in the cross. John Owen writes, The greatest sorrow and burden you can lay upon the Father, the greatest unkindness you can do to him, is to not believe that he loves you. Doubt manifests itself in subtle ways, coming out in our actions against the Lord. With every act of apathy as an example, we prove we doubt God's love for us, suggesting that his love is an insufficient motivator for who we are to be. With every act of self-reliance, we prove we doubt God's love for us, suggesting that his love is not a great enough provision. And so we rely on ourselves instead of him. And with every act of disobedience, we prove we doubt God's love for us, suggesting that his love does not have our best interest at hand. And so as we look at our text this morning, and as we learn what it means to be a child of God, I want you to note finally then, that a child of God is loved by God. The text that we read from Colossians 3.12a calls them beloved. That is to say that they are dearly loved, as some translations would say. Those called by God are loved by God, and that love is not given in a miserly manner, like the rich man who increases his wealth by being stingy, God instead lavishes his love upon his people. Generously, the Lord presents his love, using it to abundantly bless those of this world. Few things, though, are as misunderstood as the love of God. Not understanding the definition or demonstration or even the depths of God's love, it becomes obscured. For example... The world in which we live was created by God. And so I would tell you that this is an expression of his love. Creation expresses his love. It was given as a means for us to enjoy him and reflect upon his majesty. And yet for too many today, creation is the God. And so elevated is it, and thus idolatrous, is this view of the physical world that the magnificence of God is hidden and the worship of him is lost. Because too many people are worshiping the creation instead of worshiping the creator. The same could be said of another example, gender. And we know that that discussion could lead into a whole litany of other, other issues, Not just about identity, but in the context of God's love, it brings forth topics like God's given roles for men and women. And more importantly, that should cause us to consider the value of each. These debates, they, they not only consume us, but then they end up draining us of our energy to the point of exasperation. And so they confiscate our attention so that we forget that God is the sovereign creator And as a sovereign creator of male and female, it's not just a part of his perfect order, but that perfect order should lead us to see the love of God. Choosing to make some here female and others of us male, that was part of God's loving plan. And even the roles that God has defined through those, in male and female, husband and wife, they're to be earthly portrayals of the love of God. The misunderstanding of God's love, though, is a result of a misrepresentation of God's love. In a culture that has hijacked the significance of love, the definition is now reconstructed. It's gone from acting in the best interest of another to now being total acceptance of another. By controlling the meaning of love, that definition is then imported into God's love. So that for God to be loving, according to society, and now some in the church, he must be accepting. God's love means that he must be open-minded, even if something is an offense to his holiness. Something we talked about last week. Because of these misunderstandings and these misrepresentations, when we come to a text like this and we look upon it, that says that believers of God's chosen what's holy and beloved... We're not sure how to respond. We don't understand the intensity or the profundity of God's love. We fail to see that God's love involves the totality of his being. When God loves us, he does so comprehensively. He does so earnestly. The confusion of his love creates a failure to comprehend his love. And the result of that is Christians then are paralyzed to inaction. Uncertain of the meaning of God's love, we become uncertain of how to acknowledge God's love. Uncertain of how it makes a difference in our relationship with him. And thus we're uncertain of how we love one another. And so we look upon this last word of Colossians 3.12a and we do so with Scrutiny. Because I want to plumb the depths of of the essence here that we may appreciate God's love for us as children of God. To best understand God's love, we begin by looking at God's relationship with Israel. And what we see is that God's love is the basis for God's choosing of Israel. Deuteronomy 4.37, we read, and because he loved your fathers and chose their offspring after them, and brought you out of Egypt with his own presence by his great power. So not only is his rescue of Israel a result of his love, but we see that it is displayed by God's giving of his presence. Deuteronomy ten fifteen reads something similar, saying, Yet the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them, you above all peoples, as you are this day by his love god looked upon israel and he did so with favor so we use his relationship with them as an example to all people and we see just how spectacular his love is as we read this morning in psalm 136 by his love god rescued egypt or rescued israel out of egypt he saved them from the oppressive conditions from which they lived That was an expression of God's love. But we must not forget that the reason they were in Egypt was also the result of God. The reason they're receiving any of this is because God brought them to Egypt. If it weren't for the Lord's work, the people of Israel would not have ever had to endure these conditions to begin with. But even that is an expression of God's love. Because by it, the Lord willfully revealed himself. He revealed his his personality, his plan, and his personhood. One of the distinctive marks of God is that he is knowable. When we look at the nation, the idols of other nations, even that of Egypt, we see that those idols were actually considered godly because the people couldn't reach them. The people could not know them. And so God's grandest display here of his love is to use the most difficult of circumstances to make himself knowable. To understand how loving it is for God to bring us through trials so that we may know him. He does not make himself a far off or a distant God, but he's actively involving himself in the lives of his people. Perhaps if God were unloving, he would have remained hidden. God's love is seen by his involvement with people. God's love is seen by his patience. That even when they complained about him, and complained about things like the food and the wilderness, or they complained about even the leadership like in Judges, God willingly met both their needs and their wants. At other times, though, he brought judgment, like in the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Or he brought discipline, such as when he allowed his people to be carried into exile for so many years. Yet even this was God's love in action, as it was a means to bring about repentance and restoration. An unloving God would have left them to perish in their sin, Surely indeed, then, the Old Testament is a story of God's pursuit of this nation of Israel, and thus a story of his love to capture their attention so that they may be captivated by his glory and his majesty. As we've gone through these three words now, by now you should start to see a pattern. That every word that Paul begins with in this passage, chosen to be holy and loved, All of those find their beginning, their definition, and their exemplification first in Israel. These three words were the keys to establishing the Lord's relationship with Israel. And so each week i have begun by showing you how God relates to Israel through those words. But now, as Paul applies this in the New Testament, he does so to believers such as those in the Colossians. What began as a calling and the condition of Israel is now extended to others. We see this clearly in the second letter to the Thessalonians in the comment, but we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as a firstfruits to be saved through sanctification by the spirit and belief in truth. Or consider the text of Ephesians 2, 4, and 5, but God being rich in mercy, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ because of the great love with which he loved us. Because God is love, love can only be known when we know God. John puts it this way, writing, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. Therefore, to know love, one must know God. Love is defined by God. Love doesn't define God. We can't simply say that God is loving as though it's just a part of his character. God is love, meaning that true love cannot exist apart from God. We may capture glimpses of it, but genuine love is rooted in a genuine God. Therefore, to understand love, we must spend time understanding God. And I want to draw your attention then to three aspects of God's character. First, God is both eternal and infinite. God exists outside of time. He has no beginning, He has no end. And while humans may define both the beginning and end of their lives, pointing to a date of birth and a date of death, the Lord has neither. He has always existed. He exists now, and he will always exist. And so he is eternal. And if we trust that God is eternal, then we have to trust that God's love is also eternal. John Gill, a predecessor to Charles Spurgeon, writes, God's love to his elect is not of yesterday. It does not begin with their love to him. We love him because he first loved us. It was born in his heart toward them long before they were delivered from the power of darkness and translated into the kingdom of his dear son. It does not commence in time, but bears date from eternity, and is the ground and foundation of the elect's being called in time out of darkness into marvelous light. I have loved thee, says the Lord to the church, with an everlasting love. Like God himself, the love of God has no beginning and no end. It is an everlasting love. A love that described by God himself in Jeremiah 31, 3, when he says, I have loved you, talking to Israel, with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you. The point is well stressed by the psalmist of Psalm 136 that we read this morning. If you took the time to count the verses they, while we were reading, you would notice it 26 times. 26 times in that one text. The psalms declares the everlasting nature of God's love. He is proclaiming a God who is eternally loving. Consider then what it means to be recipients of an eternal love. If God's love is eternal, it will always be there. Nothing can annul God's love for you and I. He is always loving. It never fades. It never dies. It will endure endlessly. As God's love is eternal, I want you to consider that God is also perfect. At the Sermon on the Mount, Christ declares, Matthew 5, 48, You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. In calling for believers to be perfect, Jesus Christ makes the argument that God the Father is also perfect. This declaration of God's perfection comes in the middle of Christ's explanation of love, specifically when he's calling on his people to love their enemies. If you put Matthew 5, 44 and Matthew 48 side to side, it reads like this. I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Notice how he's making that connection. Suggesting that the Lord's perfection then is displayed by love. And not even by loving those that we want to love. It's displayed perfectly by loving those that we would have the most difficult time to love. The Lord himself displays this in his love for people. Even in his love for any one of us, he loved us when we were set against him and did not know him. And yet the Lord still lavishes his love. Everybody gets to experience like creation like we talked about. The most well known verse in the Bible stipulates to this, saying, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever should perish shall have everlasting life. Even though not all in the world loved him, we see that God still loves the world. And so, because God is perfect, his love is perfect. His love is given in a perfect way at the perfect time. I would tell you that God's perfect love combines well with God's wise love. If anything about God's character causes me to be thankful about God, I am continuously thankful about that point that I serve and live under an all knowing, all wise God. Because God knows all things about all things, He knows all there is to know about me. He knows the good, the bad, the ugly. He knows everything about my circumstances. He knows everything about every situation that surrounds me. And with this knowledge and with His complete wisdom, the Lord knows exactly what is necessary to influence my life. He knows exactly what I need when I need it. And because God is wise, then, He can do things like exec- execute His discipline in my life with precision precisely as I need it and when I need it. At a particular moment, he will place compassion into my life according to my needs. In this way, God executes his perfect love. When it is most needed, he brings it about in the most perfect way to create the greatest impact on a person's life. It may take various forms discipline and judgment or encouragement and exhortation. But whatever the case may be, we can be assured that at that moment, whatever we're facing, it is a perfect execution of God's love in our lives. Because God is perfect, his love is perfect. Consider finally that God is also immutable, unchangeable. The author of Hebrews states, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever while Malachi 3.6, the Lord declares about himself, for I, the Lord, do not change. Because God is love, it's not just part of his character, we can say then that the love of God that he displays towards others will also never change. God's love is consistent. It will never be removed, it will never be transformed. It will never change his expectations. Think of the implications of that. If the love of God never changes, it means that God's love is never dependent upon who I am. It's only dependent upon who God is. Martin Luther once said, God does not love us because we are valuable, but we are valuable because God loves us. If God's love was determined by who we are, It would change based on our inability to meet God's standards or based on our ability to please God. But God's love does not change because the character of God does not change. God loves not because of who we are, but because of who he is. It is in God's nature then to love the unlovely. So because God is eternal and perfect and immutable, God's love is also eternal perfect and immutable those attributes together then and we could talk about all of God's attributes in relation to love but looking at even just these three it elevates God's love bringing it to something that's more than just an emotion the love of God is sensible it's never subjecting itself to the irrationality of human emotion the love of God is stable it never subjects itself to the instability of wavering affections. And the love of God is sustainable, never subjecting itself to a decision of determination. Of it will always endure. It is everlasting, after all. Regardless of who we are, the love of God always is, because God is. If it is this sensible, stable, sustainable love of God, That he lavishes upon a believer. And it is this love with which God influences our lives. With a love that is sensible. God loves us. And in doing so, he brings reason to our lives. Love becomes rational. Not the subject of a deceitful heart. Instead, it is based on the truth of God's character. It makes sense. And with a love that is stable, God brings steadiness into our lives. Because the love of God is dependent upon who God is, it will never fluctuate with the ways of the world. Because of the love of God is dependent upon who God is, it will never oscillate based upon the nature of human emotion at any given moment. And because that love is dependent upon who God is, It will never waver based on man's personality and personhood. Finally, with a love that is sustainable, God brings endurance into our lives. A sustainable love will experience all things on behalf of another. We'll even read about that in the upcoming weeks in our text. A sustainable love will never desert someone based on circumstances or character. And a sustainable love will endure the greatest trial and the greatest triumph. When Paul writes, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, his wording reminds believers, the Colossians specifically, but also extended to all believers, that we are enclosed not merely by the action of love, but we are enveloped by all that God is. To be loved by God is to experience what we need. To be loved by God is to experience all that God is willing to give. And to be loved by God is to experience who God is. The love of God embodies God's character. And so when we experience God's love, we are experiencing who he is. This is a love that you will never find anywhere else. The world will never display it Friends and family will never display it. It is found only in God Himself. This is why those who seek their love among the world will always be dissatisfied because their love is incomplete, because it lacks the character of God. Think about it the world's love is reflective of humanity. Which is what? Humanity is stubborn, it is selfish, and it is sinful. So its love is going to be stubborn and selfish and sinful. What we need is a fullness of love not found in humanity, but the fullness of love found in divinity. We need to wrap ourselves in a love that is sensible and stable and sustainable. Because humanity is sustained by the love of divinity. We're not children of God because we love God. We're children of God because God loved us us and when he loved he did so timelessly and thoroughly he loved us perfectly and precisely he loved us wisely and wonderfully and so we must look upon ourselves and with honest examination and admit there are times when our attitudes divulge a personal rejection of the love of god There are times when our activities declare a rebellion against the love of God. And there are times when our actions disclose a reluctance of the love of God. In those moments when our behavior betrays our belief, we must look to the love of God and be reassured and reconciled. Because his love causes us to remember four things. First, the love of God secures salvation. Salvation is always regarded as, as a free gift of God, an expression of his grace. It is only because God is love that salvation flows from that nature and that we have access to it because God is love, then the believer is reassured of his position before God. Never do we need to doubt who we are. Because we have his love expressed through the sufficient work of his son. Second, the love of God safeguards from sin. Certainly, my willpower doesn't keep me from sin alone. In fact, my willpower often leads me into sin. But in those moments of failure, I love God less and love myself more. And yet, the love of God safeguards me from sin. It causes me to restrain the potential influence of sin in my life. By the work of God, none of us are as sinful as we ever could be. But first, resting in the love of God causes me to try to restrain sin. Seeking more of him, we seek less of sin. We seek to not know sin so that we may know him. But second, the love of God caused him to bring not only the gift of salvation, but the gift of his spirit. His spirit, which works in every believer as a helper, who enables believers to live a life of holiness so that they may be deterred from living a life of sinfulness. Third, the love of God sustains through sorrow. It is the love of God. It is the love of God. sometimes, expressed through people that sustains individuals in their most intense times of sorrow. When they're experiencing the greatest grief, it is the love of God that sustains us. As you heard this morning on Thursday morning, Mary's daughter passed away. What you may not remember is tomorrow is the one-year anniversary of the death of Nancy's son, Tuesday is one year ago when the small family learned about the diagnosis of Jesse's mom. Why do I bring that up? And I have talked to most of them and do so with permission, but why do I mention that? Because it is in these instances, those trying times, those difficulties, when we often find human sorrow, and often at the deepest levels of human sorrow. It is in those moments when we are most tempted to say that we don't trust God or we cast doubt on God's goodness and question the legitimacy of God's love. But it is also in those moments when we not only need to draw closer to God, but it is when the love of God is most revealed. In sharing those examples with you, I share them because in every conversation I had with them, I was always struck by something with each one, I don't think any of them ever expressed a doubt of God's love to me. In fact, quite the contrary. I can remember conversations with each one in which they pointed to God's love in the midst of those trials. As difficult as it may be, there was little doubt of any of them that God loved them, and this was part of his perfect plan. As a god of comfort, as Paul writes in Second Corinthians, trusting in the love of God sustains us through sorrow. Fourth, the love of God sympathizes with our suffering. The love of God, as I said, is with us in triumph and trial. When we understand that God is loving, we rest in the knowledge that su- the suffering that God has brought is a way in which he saw necessary to love us at that moment. The love of God should cause us to trust him then, even in those moments when we are most uncertain about him. In those moments when we may act contrary to the love of God, then let us look and pause long enough to reflect on the love of God that we may be reflections of God's love. All of this should bring us to consider something very important, then. When we take into account all the things we see in God's love, it should tell us one thing about both God and the love in which He loves us it is sufficient. The love of God is sufficient with all people at all times. The love of God is sufficient in salvation, the love of God is sufficient in sin. The love of God is sufficient in sorrow, and the love of God is sufficient in suffering. To live a life of joy, we need to live a life in the love of God. Not as the world defines it, but as God defines his love. And if there was ever a time that you think the Lord's love is not sufficient, if ever there was a time when you think God is not loving you enough, and if ever there was a time when you want more of God's love, take a measurement of God's love in your life. And there is only one way to measure God's love. The love of God is not measured by health. The love of God is not measured by wealth. The love of God is not measured by prosperity or property or security. If at any time we want to see the love of God manifested in our lives, we need not ask, What amount of God's love do I deserve? Instead, we ask, What amount of God's wrath do I deserve? If you want to know how much God loves you, then only consider how much wrath he is holding back from you. And so over the course of these last three weeks, we've seen that a child of God is chosen by God. A child of God is set apart by God, and a child of God is loved by God. It is first expressed in his relationship with Israel, such as it is also the relationship with those whom are his children, By the work of his spirit, the Lord works in the hearts and minds to call souls to himself. He offers to them something the world cannot offer. He offers them salvation from the world. He offers them salvation from the world and from its fleshly vices. And in calling those individuals to himself, God has set them apart. He has consecrated them for his purposes. And they are to be holy distinctive from the world, because indeed they are children of God and not children of the world. And now that calling is manifested through the love of God. A child of God is chosen by God, set apart by God, and loved by God. And so my hope is that as we've examined each of these verses or these words, that we have seen the character of God so that we may have confidence in God. And that sets us up for then the remainder of the text from verses 12 through 17. And so today in this week, I pray that we would look upon God in fullness. In the fullness of his glory and majesty. So that we may respond to him with awe and amazement and say, I am a child of God. Let's pray. Our Father God, indeed, if we have called upon the name of your Son, we are your children, Lord. Father, we can also say as a result, we are holy and chosen and beloved, Lord. Father, whatever circumstance we may be facing, Lord, I pray that we would then trust in that love. Lord, may we lean on you heavily, seeing the sufficiency of your love, seeing that it indeed is stable and sustainable and sensible in our lives, Lord. And so may we cling to that. And as we do so, may we just learn to cling to you more. Father, continue to reveal your love to us. Help us to know you more by knowing your love. We are so grateful and thankful that we get to experience that, Lord. And so, Father, may we not take that for granted but may it drive us to a deeper relationship with you. It is in your holy and precious name we pray. Amen.